0: The second and final paper in this panel is by Dr. Polly Jones of UCL-Cease. It's entitled Myth, Memory, Fandom. Konstantin Simonov and his readers in the 1950s and 1960s. Yes, um, well, thanks first of all to the organisers. I think this is an absolutely tremendous conference and all, all credit to you for it being very smooth running and I, I found it extremely interesting and stimulating. Um, so in the brief for the uh, the conference, um, John sent me an email as I'm sure he sent to all the participants asking us to present how we find our, found archival material and then what we did with it. So I'm going to try and do both of those things today necessarily um, in outline in both cases. So my presentation is going to be Split, I hope, sort of rel- roughly halfway through. Um, firstly, I'm going to present, I hope, a salutary tale of my several years' quest to gain access to a particular source base which verged on obsession. <laughs> and then, uh, secondly, I'm going to uh, give a very brief outline of the kinds of arguments that I've been able to make um, with those sources. Um, which I found tremendously useful, and which has made a really big difference to the uh, book that I'm currently writing up. So my paper today uh, is about this man, Konstantin Simonov, And it's about how I found readers' letters written to him in response to his two Khrushchev-era novels. So just to introduce him briefly, I'm sure most of you know uh, at least who he is, but let me just run through a few brief facts. He's probably in many ways the ultimate Soviet writer, and that's why I chose him. Uh, I think he's probably the most famous wartime and post-war figure in Soviet literature, almost certainly I think the most important writer of war literature, and in the Brezhnev era in particular, very interestingly involved in um, shaping war memory and working with veterans, although I won't be talking about that today. Um, As Orlando Figes has recently argued in The Whisperers, I think Constance, is an ideal figure to trace the trajectory from Stalinism to post-Stalinism and to explore the complexities of de-Stalinization. He himself had a very complex and personally difficult journey from being a fairly orthodox Stalinist to spending virtually the entire post-Stalin period investigating and and redrawing the figure of Stalin, thinking about the terror of 1937 and rewriting the uh, fictional uh, narrative of the war. So he first became famous during uh, the war um, with his uh, war correspondent dispatches for a variety of Soviet newspapers, uh, but most notably probably with his iconic poem, Wait For Me, which was made into film and uh, songs and all sorts of things. Um, and also his, uh, his 1942 novel set in Stalingrad, Days and Nights. Um, after the war, he continued to be highly influential, partly as a result of the celebrity that he'd gained during the war. Um, he was uh, the, the author of this post-war novel, which was actually the first novel to feature some of the characters of the uh, novels that I'll be talking about today. He was the editor of Novy Mir for a brief period after Twardovsky's first sacking, and he continued to be highly placed in the Writers' Union. Um, But above all, in the post stalin period, he was famous as the author of two major uh, Khrushchev-era war novels that I'll be talking about today. They're my two case studies, Uh, The Living and the Dead, published not coincidentally three years after the 20th Party Congress, and People Are Not Born Soldiers, published, as you can see, two years after the 22nd Party Congress and both of them deeply affected by the revelations of Star- about Stalinism that were made there. And even actually his, his sort of high Brezhnev era sequel and in fact the end of that, that trilogy that he published in the early 1970s also continues to rethink the issue of Stalinism although he was subject to a lot more censorship by that point. So today, then, the uh, the two uh, novels I'll be talking about, "The Living in the Dead" and "People Are Not Born Soldiers," these are some examples of Soviet and post-Soviet editions. They continue to be very uh, bestsellers in the post-Soviet uh, book market. Um, they uh, were translated. This is the translation of uh, "Living in the Dead" from a books book-selling journal of the 1960s. Uh, they were made into films. Um, this was a Khrushchev era film and a completely butchered uh, Brezhnev era film, which uh, Simonov actually removed his name and the title of the novel from because he he felt it had been so butchered by the censors. Now, both of these novels offer um, a sort of de-Stalinized vision of the early war, not completely, obviously, but they do offer groundbreaking portrayals of Stalin himself uh, of 1937 and of the massive massive losses and humiliations of the early Soviet war effort. There are two main heroes in both of these novels. Uh, One is a uh, prisoner of war who has to break out of encirclement several times and suffers the consequences once he returns. Um, The other is a victim of 1937 who returns uh, to fight directly from the Gulag Uh, Stalin himself appears at length in the second of the two novels People Are Not Born Soldiers and that's one of the most detailed and direct portraits of the leader in literature and it's very important in terms of reader response. For all the evident importance of these novels in the Thor and in de Stalinization, I was very struck when I was reading the scholarship on Semenov, which is mostly um, in, in Russian, um, that nobody had really sp- uh, paid any attention to the letters that were sent to him um, in response to these two groundbreaking novels, um, even though they all alluded to the fact there were thousands of them, and this uh, set me off on a very long journey. It struck me that if I could only find these letters and read them, that they'd be a great untapped resource for investigating not just the reception of of though that's interesting. But I think as a representative case study of the reception of de-Stalinization as it was orchestrated in mainstream Soviet literature. Now, I had no idea when I first started looking for these letters of how difficult it would in fact be to get hold of them, but nor did I have any idea how useful and moving um, I would actually find these letters uh, once I did get hold of them, and I hope to evoke some of that um, with with the extracts that I'll be showing you later on. Um, I eventually used this material to write a chapter of my uh, monograph on the reception of Soviet literature about Stalin, the terror, and the war, Um, and I'm going to outline the argument of that chapter later on. So my paper is going to outline firstly how I actually went about obtaining a corpus of about 700 um, such letters. Secondly, very briefly, um, some of the methodological and theoretical problems that they might pose as sources. And finally, I'm going to show you a few extracts on the basis of those to outline some of the kinds of arguments that I make on the basis of those about public and popular popular memory of Stalinism. So in that sense, how one moves from the archive text sort of beyond the text, if you like, to uh, respond to the rubric of the conference. Um, so my story uh, begins uh, we've already seen this picture I think in JJ's presentation from the Russian internet this is uh, the Russian State Archive of Literature and Art now there are some specific uh, difficulties of conducting research in Regali shall we say and I'm not going to tell you a horror story but we've had this figure Dima mentioned several times who runs the uh, reading room with a reign of terror I've known him for 10 years, we've had our ups and downs, it's sort of like a a sort of dysfunctional marriage really but uh, (laughs) in any case um, Uh, There there are certain uh, problems with Regali. The other one, I think JJ also mentioned, is that it takes a long time to get hold of material. And both of those features of Regali will feature in what I'm gonna say. Um, But I think, in general, there are lessons that I can um, extrapolate from my experience of working here that are applicable to all post-Soviet archives, I think. One is the value of perseverance is the need to use all possible uh, contacts or sfiazi and third is the need for stakhanavism once the materials finally arrive um, so for a long time when I was researching the reception of these two novels I resigned myself to um, only having the letters which I found quite early on held by the journals Namia in, in which both the novels had, first, had, had been published and I knew that there were a lot more out there just from traces in the, in the scholarship and so on I then, I, I found uh, Siemenov's personal fond in Regali also quite early on, but uh, uh, written on the office in very large capital letters. It said that it was closed except with the permission of the relatives. So that was the first obstacle. The second obstacle was then when I asked Dima uh, how to get hold of the contact details of the relatives or how I should go about um, doing this, he told me that the relatives didn't actually want to be approached for 20 more years. And uh, (laughs) I remember this moment as a moment, I thought, well, okay, well, when I'm 55, I guess I'll write a biography of Semenov, but I'll give up for now. And then this April, I thought, no, actually, I, I was back in Moscow on the Russian Archive Training Scheme uh, trip, and we were in the office of the director of Regali, uh, Tatyana Gariaeva, who's a, a legendary figure, and I asked her, rather sneakily, to verify the information that Dima had given me, and she said, by contrast, that no, I didn't have to wait 20 years, that actually I could contact Semenov's relatives and ask for permission. She said it wasn't guaranteed, but that I should certainly try. She gave me the phone number of Yekaterina uh, Kirilovna um, Konstantin Simena, have also went by the name Curiel hence the patronymic um, and uh, said call her so, without letting myself kind of get too terrified, I called her immediately, and she was very nice. But she said, "I'm sorry, I'm in Paris, and I'm on a roaming tariff. Please, can you email me instead? It's too expensive to talk." So I sent her a long email explaining what what I wanted to do uh, with the material, what exact files I wanted to look at, my reasons for needing them, and so on. She was very nice, and she was very interested in why I wanted to look at her father's archive. Um, I think she was quite sort of honoured really that somebody wanted to dig around in these readers' letters, and um, she authorised the request. I went back to Dima, brandishing this email. He said, no, you need to get another email (laughs) written in a particular form. So I did that. um, And then finally, I was authorised to order the materials, which then, of course, took another week to arrive. So by the time I finally acquired the material, I only had a week left in Moscow. So as you'll see, I had to resort to uh, illegally photographing some of the documents, I'm afraid, as well as working every single possible hour that Regalia was open to notate this corpus of letters. And that's where my point about stakhanavism uh, comes in. So, uh, how much and what kind of letters did I find then? Well, I found about 700 unique letters. I found there was quite a lot of duplication between the files and between um, the Znamia letters and the, the Semen of letters. So that's obviously quite a quantitatively significant um, corpus of letters, although still a self-selecting section of the readership and, of course, not representative of the whole Soviet population. But I did feel that on reading them, a few features made them uh, genuinely uh, useful. One that they, they lack the kind of metropolitan intelligentsia bias that we often run up against, especially I'm thinking of the, the pioneering work of Denis Kozlov with the archive of Novimir, Reader's Letters where he freely admits that there's a, there's a very clear bias. These come from all over the Soviet Union and that, that's interesting, I think, although I haven't sort of tried to make any kind of arguments about different Republican sentiments about these novels, but I think they're very diverse. Um, they are uh, largely, as we would probably expect, from veterans, which also makes it interesting, and lots of, um, a, a very high, well a third of the letters at least are from women um, which I think evokes a different experience of war for my purposes it was also extremely interesting that about well, a, a small percentage but this was still obviously a, if you can imagine this large corpus it's still quite a large number of letters were from terror victims and from uh, people who had suffered problems after breaking out of encirclement during the war and so uh, I was able to see how victims of those two Stalin quintessentially Stalinist experiences reacted to seeing their experiences reflected in Soviet fiction. I've mentioned also the point about uh, gender there. I should say that I'm not doing quantitative analysis on these letters. I don't believe I've seen all of them. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that they're all there to be seen. Some of them may have been destroyed, some of them may be hidden elsewhere. What I do with them, as you'll see, is to do a sort of qualitative analysis of the diversity of the discourse around issues to do with Stalinism and around the de-Stalinization campaign. Um, But before I get on to that, just a few remarks on practical issues, just to show you a few of these documents. Now, um, the first thing, uh, I'm not sure if you can see that very well, but it's a handwritten slide and a a typewritten slide. Uh, The the single best moment of all of this, apart from actually being able to order the materials finally after my years of struggle, was that I found that um, all of the materials, almost all of them had been typed up. Um, unlike with most uh, surveys of readers' letters, I didn't have to contend very much with the issue of handwriting. I think this was down to the fact that Siemenov was uh, very rich by this point, very privileged, probably had a team of secretaries whose job it was to write up readers' letters. And they came in in their thousands, and so they'd obviously been sort of catalogued there were also uh, in the file, there are also some um, extracts. Um, again, it's not very visible, but you get the idea. This is, these are extracts rather than full text letters, which allow me to increase my sample size um, of the overall letters. They came in sort of bound volumes and I, uh, that were made up for Semenov, I guess, to, to read in his own time. Another interesting feature of the letters was that um, they, they often had enclosures. They had a certain sort of material existence that I thought it was important to record. This is an example, one of several, where a veteran sent in a picture of him with all of his medals um, to sort of show Seaman of how, how you know proud he was of his war contribution. This one, again, hasn't come out very well, but this was a, frankly, completely batty letter that filled an entire um, school textbook <laughs> that was uh, a defense of Stalin's idea about active defense, so the old sort of... Of linchpin at of the Stalinist historiography and it was written throughout this entire exercise book. It was the longest letter I ever saw and I loved the kind of academic packaging for what was completely without any academic merit but I thought that was important to, uh, to record too. And finally, Finally, again, um, these are letters from Semenov back to the readers, and this is something I found particularly useful. Um, Despite, obviously, being very busy and dealing with this overwhelming amount of correspondence, Semenov did often write back in great detail. So we can actually trace the effects of the letters on him, on what he then goes on to write, and we can sort of trace this resulting dialogue. And there are two main things. One is that Semenov is very, very interested in all these stories that veterans pour out to him, and he starts storing them in this archive, which by by the time of his death, is gigantic and has taken over most of his apartment, this starts in response to these novels. And secondly, he polemicises a lot with people's view of Stalin and the terror. Um, He he doesn't always seek to present his view as correct, but he has this interesting dialogue about Stalinism with them, which I think was formative for himself and probably formative for the readers too. So... um, those are, those are features which I thought were particularly useful. So what can these letters tell us about memory, then, to return to my original point? Um, well, I view de-Stalinisation in, in the monograph as a whole as an exercise in the reorientation of public memory about the terror about Stalin. Um, I find when I read um, through around the sort of comparative literature on uh, sort of this public popular memory divide, that popular memory or communicative memory, to use Asman's term, there are various private memory, um, it's very much more theorized than it is empirically tested. And I felt that there was something about these letters that would actually allow me to sort of engage in some kind of empirical analysis of of people's memories. Um, So so that was my first thought. However, the letters do pose significant problems. Let me just outline three very briefly. One is, of course, how do we discern the personal from within um, the issue of... Of, uh, speaking Bolshevik as Kotkin would call it or indeed more positively Helbeck's gloss on this is sort of Soviet subjectivity can people express the personal and the individual through this language how do we as a researcher read that um, there's a lot of sort of Soviet phrasing in these letters ranging from people talking about um, you know the war is a kind of tempering experience yes so how the steel was tempered there's a lot of kind of Soviet novel master plot yes to use Katerina Clark's um, novel, and so on these are optimistic narratives are they, are they genuine what do we do with that kind of apparently Soviet language? Is it, is it contaminating force or is it something that people are using more positively, as Helbeck would argue? Um, secondly, these are texts about tra- uh, terror and war. So to some degree, they are trauma narratives. And as any trauma theorist will tell you, uh, trauma can often not be voiced or it's resistant to articulation or expression. So how do we read between the lines? How do we read for what's not there, what people can't still talk about? Uh, And finally, and I'm going to come back to this point at the end, uh, Jay Winter and George Moss have talked a lot about how war memory in particular is shaped by a very powerful urge to redeem or to mask or to transcend senseless loss and death and grief. Um, So again, is there an issue here of self-censorship? What are people not saying? Um, Okay. so the first thing I needed to do then when I was tackling these letters was to think about the uh, longer context which had shaped them. There was a tradition of letter writing to Semenov that shaped uh, the post-Salinist novel's uh, reader responsibility. In very fundamental ways. And it started in the war. There's Seaman dressed as a soldier, and there he is at the bottom, posting his copy to, I think, Krasnoy's Vista during the war. And in response to everything that he wrote in the war, he was highly prolific. He got thousands of readers' letters, and Fijas has looked a little bit at this, as have some other scholars. Um, uh, There were lots of fan letters, in other words, and I think they shape um, the genre of the fan letter after Stalin's death. Um, From the time of his first dispatches, readers um, acclaimed his physical and his emotional closeness to the soldiers, that is, he was seen as somebody who really got into the trenches, got down dirty, and then also who was able to express uh, what soldiers were feeling. I've given you a couple of examples. This is from a published collection of um, readers' letters, but they do seem to accord with what people have found in the archives for the wartime reader response. Um, So there's this belief, in other words, that readers could pour out personal emotions and individual war traumas to him, and that continues in the post stalin period. I think his wartime celebrity creates a sort of sense of trust in Semenov in two ways. Uh, One is a sort of sense a trust in in the veracity of the information that he's presenting Uh, and secondly a trust that people can entrust their own stories to him Um, and this sense of trust I think in Seymour, and we see um, various in in the post dollar letters we see references to his um, wartime reputation and people just carrying on seeing him in the same vein Um, there's another couple of examples yes this idea that he's still telling the truth in other words now, on the one hand, I think that meant that readers' letters in the, in the post war era continued to be unusually personal, full of personal war memory and honest about individual emotions and trauma. But I think it also creates a kind of generic sort of template of affect or an expectation that, that readers should express their emotions. And that almost <laughs> verged on the impersonal or the generic. So that was one thing I had to think about. I think also often because readers trusted him so much, they also trusted in his conclusions and didn't challenge them. That wasn't true by any means of all of all readers, but there's a sense of deferring. You're right, of I don't have anything else left to say. And certainly when I looked at all of the uh, letters, a good half of them were simply just responses uh, asking for a sequel, asking what happens to the characters next. Now that's interesting in and of itself. People want to know that the characters survive. In fact, they actually don't, and there's a whole kind of Brezhnev era kind of scandal when he kills off the two main heroes, but that comes later. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, a lot of these letters are quite generic is, is what I'm trying to say. But Um, What I want to look at today are the more elaborate responses. Um, So let me give you a few examples. First of all, as uh, this sort of template set in wartime would lead us to expect, there's an awful lot of emotion washing around in these letters. They had a kind of hydraulic effect, to use Barbara Rosenwine's rather um, dismissive term for sort of emotional release. Um, How widespread and how genuine are these? And I've given you a few examples here. Um, They may seem... I don't know. I, I, I find it difficult to read these and in, in some ways I think one has to take it absolutely seriously that this is um, these are genuine emotions but clearly some of it verges on um, the, the hysterical. I think, having, I think one has to work on instinct here. I've read hundreds of these as I've said and I've also read a lot of other reader response to other Soviet readers and I do think there seems to be something uniquely cathartic and sincere about these letters so I, I, I think one has to bring a certain sense of instinct here. It's difficult to prove. I think they do suggest that reading these two novels was cathartic for a population whose experiences of suffering during the war and whose contribution to victory had been systematically elided for most of the post-war period. Okay, so um, secondly... Paradoxically, perhaps, a lot of these letters actually use the language of trauma. Now, again, as I've said, trauma theory would tend to suggest that trauma is inexpressible. It's impossible to capture or to understand. And many uh, many of the women, especially, who wrote *Semen*, have actually used the literal language of trauma. Yes, Kathy Carruths reminds us that, um, that trauma means wound. Now, here's one example. This is one of several um, from a female uh, writer who wrote and said that she didn't want to read the novel. She didn't enjoy reading the novels because it caused her wounds to reopen and to bleed again so there's this sort of sense of reluctance really to confront the wartime trauma Semenov and this is where his responses become particularly valuable right he writes back and says I understand that you have this trauma so on the one hand he's emotionally sympathetic but on the other he says no actually I believe that I have to confront this trauma and this is something he believes the whole post stalin period that he has to document the experience of war in all of its truth about the living and the dead yes this this was this was a a belief that he had Um, So here we see a reluctance, I think, to confront trauma. But in many cases, these letters seem to have been more curative. People do seem to have read them in ways that, uh, read the novels and experienced a form of kind of healing, or that's what they allude to in the letters, at least. There seems to have been a genuine usefulness in these novels for working through trauma to use um, them. Capra's idea. On the one hand, this idea that when when readers uh, wrote back, that they were able to out, you know, they, they were able to engage in kind of outpouring of their own stories. This was a letter from a man Lapatin who wrote with his, this information about his autobiography or this loss that he'd suffered in his family, and he said, "It's easier when I tell you about my living and dead." So this sense that this sort of macro narrative of the novel is reflecting the micro narratives of the of the readers. On the other hand, there's this sense that the novel also functioned as a kind of memory site um, uh, in which. To, in which to mark uh, otherwise unmourned and, and therefore haunting deaths, it perhaps provides a sense of closure. People writing in saying, yes this is actually a novel about my, the people who I lost and whose deaths, I, do, I don't know the circumstances of their deaths, but I'm going to substitute the novel characters um, for that. Um, now Semenov, when he responds to these sort of letters, emphasizes he's not writing a documentary novel but at the same time he does say, yes I did meet people who are like your, your husband or your brother, or, and, and he says that actually he used real life people character prototypes, and we know that from the history of the drafting of the novels. And he promises to use a lot of this biographical information and starts to collect this archive that I alluded to. So I think he encourages this sense of sort of porosity between literature and life, of the crossover between the act of reading and between and the act of what Anna Krilova has called the healing of wounded souls. Um, so my first big conclusion is that I think that veterans can not only tolerate greater truth about suffering, defeat, retreat, and all this, these other traumas of the early war, but they actively welcome it as a way to reflect their own experiences in public memory and to make sense of war and uh, we can see here people saying I agree the war was horrific and I'm glad you've written about it now that sense that term there in the second uh, quotation is interesting because it was a term that was often used to beat uh, de-stalinizing writers of the time your your writing is too full of and here we find that readers actually seem to be able to tolerate it Okay, now on the other hand, I found that conversely, Slymenev's attempts to tell the truth about terror before and during the war was met with much greater critique and cynicism, largely from victims themselves. So on the one hand, these victims write to him and say, I'm very glad that you're now reflecting my experiences in Soviet literature, but they suggest that actually the experiences don't fit in Soviet literature, that they sort of explode the boundaries of the socialist realist master plot, the kind of optimistic narrative, they explode the sort of Soviet identity. Um, Oh, sorry. Yeah, so we have, uh, these are examples of people who either themselves experienced encirclement or knew people who had, and uh, the second one I think is particularly interesting, it says Sov, this is the one of the heroes, his path out of encirclement didn't lead where you led him, but at the very least to a verification camp. So there's kind of cynicism, uh, you can't give a happy ending to these stories, it doesn't fit within the socialist realist um, master plot. Um, similarly, uh, with the truth about terror, again, people who'd either experienced terror themselves or who knew victims of 1937, again, they're pleased that they can see their stories reflected, but they think they've been imperfectly reflected um, it, within the bounds of this Soviet novel. Um, the woman on the right-hand side, Adamova, said that, you know, it, this was an enormous school. One could emerge devastated, having lost faith in everything. This is exactly not how the character is portrayed in the novel. He sort of says, "Well, I, you know, it was terrible that I had to go off to the gulag, but here I am, ready to fight again." She says, "No, that's not true." And actually, I'm going to give you my autobiographical information so that you can refine your picture and actually tell the, the truth. So I think there's a difference here between the truth about war and then the truth about terror. The truth about terror seems to be much more troubling to his readers. And finally, um, the truth about Stalin. As I said, um, much more response um, to the second novel, where we've got this long scene with Stalin. Um, now, what I was struck by in the letters, there weren't all that many that talked about Stalin, but there were you a know, fair number, um, about, about 10% of the letters. Um, Uh, uh, What struck me was that they were totally dichotomous. There was nobody who was happy with the picture of Stalin. There were very, very um, pro-Stalinist letters and very, very anti-Stalinist letters. And I think both of them actually show the difficulty of apprehending the truth about Stalin, how little real knowledge there was about Stalin and little historical information. So the first set here, um, these are pro-Stalinist letters, of which uh, pro and anti-Stalinist letters were about equal in number. So an example here I, I liked in particular because it's a sort of catechism. It's sort of saying Stalin led us to victory. It reminds me actually of Stalin's kind of de- um, speech at Lenin's funeral. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but uh, in any case, we can see here this really almost um, religious belief, this idea that the cult is a kind of political religion, so it's not amenable to the factual critique of de Stalinization. On the other, we have people saying, well, it's all very well what you're saying about Stalin But actually, emotionally, I can't dissociate myself from him. Uh, Again, it's not vulnerable to this kind of factual critique anti-Stalinist letters, finally. Again, one would expect that these letters would sort of uh, present a more truthful or a more realistic or demythologised picture of Stalin. What I actually found, though, using the work of uh, Ros Marsh and Margaret Joukowsky, who've written about portraits of Stalin in dissident literature, so applying it to these letters, was that actually they're not really telling the truth about Stalin. What they're doing is inverting the tropes of the cult. They're being sarcastic about the language of the cult. Uh, For example, in the left-hand side there, we can see um, this idea that he's not this kind of monumental figure that we see in the cult, but he's a pygmy, he's puny, he's covered in potmarks. well, you know, that, that was obviously a rumour that was circulating at the time, right? People sort of knew that, but they, you know, this sort of sense, they don't really know who he is, so they're sort of inverting the tropes, uh, and in the in the second quotation, we can see that as well, this sarcasm about the genius of Stalin and the uh, the fact that he's avoged, a great leader, but actually he creates this awful mess at the start of the war, so then my last point, finally. Um, truth about the war as a whole. I think, uh, judging by these letters, uh, the majority of letters did still seek to redeem the price of victory um, and to, in a way, to mask or to transcend the unnecessary deaths caused by both the pre-war terror and by Stalin's miscalculations at the start of the war. I think for the majority, um, and th- this is uh, using, again, George Mars and J. Winter's idea about what war me- how war memory functions, I think for the majority, the image of the triumphant Narod, yes, remained intact. And it remained, and the war remained a usable part of the post war and post Stalinist regime. The war myth survived, in other words, this this attempt at demythologisation. So, let me just very briefly conclude. So, I argue in the chapter that I've based on these sources that I found that more truthful Soviet war literature fulfilled an important function. Uh, It helped reveal the truth about the war, it helped people to confront the trauma of the war, and it helped in thinking about Stalinist past and in inserting personal stories into public memory, although some of them clearly threatened um, Soviet socialist realism, as I've I've said. I argue that this closer relationship between fictional uh, representations of the war and actual experience meant a closer relationship between writers and readers and a greater success for Soviet literature in its avowed popular or narodny functions. I think these letters also show that greater truth about death and injustice was still not incompatible with the redemptive teleology of war. So I think this was a workable form of public memory, in other words, that Semenov was attempting. Um, And arguably more so than the more mythic, varnished war Cult that the opponents of de imposed after Khrushchev's fall, and when they did that, they increasingly targeted exactly semenov uh, precisely him and his attempts to expand on the whole truth um, uh, in the later 1960s. They alleged that to be corrosive and depressing, and I think the evidence I have here of popular memory shows that that's actually not the case at all. But that's the argument that's used, right, by by um, these. Proponents of re Stalinization. Um, now, Semenov thereafter then had to find ways, new ways after the fall of Khrushchev to keep real veteran memory alive and to explore Stalinism in, in sometimes more private settings. Because of his fame and his patronage ties, he was uniquely placed to do so, but even he struggled with publication bans and censorship, and I talk about that in the final chapter of my book. But I think the story of Semenov and war memory and late socialism will have to wait for another book and uh, for more permission from Yekaterina Kirillovna herself to delve further into this, what I found to be a really really useful archive. Thank you.